0: The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org.
1: So we are doing what's traditionally called an Old Testament survey, walking book by book through Jesus' Bible. And I'm not going to do a full-blown review of what I did last year, but I've come to a definitive point that requires that I do something that um, for some of you, you've heard me perhaps talk on this before and it won't be a shocker, for others of you this may be a shocker, and that is that we've come, to the book of, we've come through the book of Judges and the very next book in Jesus' Bible is not Ruth. The next book of Jesus' Bible is Samuel. And that's because Jesus' Bible, even though it had the same books that our English Bibles do, they were in a different order. So I want to talk about that today. And we are walking through Jesus' Bible, not just out of random, because I think this order would be good, but because I think it is, I'll say this boldly, most helpful I think Jesus called us to look at his Bible through a certain arrangement that began with Genesis and ended with Chronicles, a a structure of his Bible that has three parts, law, prophets, and writings. And that's how I approach his Bible. So we're going to look at this structure today and, okay, so pray with me and then we will Get started. You've got a a three page handout. We've got a lot of space to cover. We're going to do a little bit of review and then we're going to jump in. Pray with me. Father, help me now. Meet us, I pray. May today not be a day of confusion, but a day of clarity. I pray this through Jesus. Amen. Well, I just remembered one, one other thing I had wanted to do. I just wanted to give some of you who weren't here the very first day of class at the beginning of the semester a glimpse of my children, which is why I didn't get to teach last spring. Um, my wife and I went to last fall. Um, I, my wife and I traveled to Ethiopia, picked up twins, brought them home in September, and by the grace of this class gave me a one-semester sabbatical to try to help them transition in and so i just wanted maybe i can show you this resolution is not optimal um so there's my gang my wife teresa 18 and a half years ah sorry yeah Janie 13 isaac 9 then you see the two new ones joey and joy um the littlest ones that are waving at the camera. And uh, Joey and Joy, three years old. Ezra is my four year old. And then Ruthie. I say four year old because when you look at this picture, he's only a month, a year and two months older than the twins, but a good 13 inches taller. So um, I've been told I can anticipate a A son who's around 6'8". So, anyway, back to to our morning. Okay, a little review. Walk through all of the biblical storyline. If you were to ask Jesus what he was here to preach, he made it very clear. He was here to preach one thing. Anybody know? Pardon? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then bound up in that, repent. Okay, but the kingdom, the kingdom, God's reign over God's people in God's land for God's glory. The kingdom. That's what Jesus came to proclaim. And so what I did was simply, uh, with God's help and a lot of hitting my head, I took that one word, kingdom, because Jesus said, I'm here to fulfill the Old Testament. And then he summarized his message as kingdom, so the Old Testament is about the kingdom. And when he summarized what the kingdom was about, he said, and I'm thinking here of Luke 24, when he summarized for his disciples the scriptures, he said, this is about Me, that the Messiah would die and be raised to life in three days and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed throughout the world. The kingdom is about the Messiah and is about missions. So, I took all of the history in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and I broke it up into seven stages, five in the Old, two in the New, The old is about foundation, the new is about fulfillment, and the seven stages are listed here, but then I put it together with kingdom, so that you and I could remember what these stages are really well. So a year and a half ago when we started the Old Testament survey, this was the first day, and we walked through these seven stages. So, creation, fall, flood. Who can remember what the K stands for? Anybody? Kickoff. Whether you're a football fan, soccer fan, you've got a kickoff. And it's kickoff and rebellion. That's stage one. Stage two, the patriarchs. So, we've got Adam and Eve... God commissions them to take His image to the ends of the earth, fill the earth, multiply and subdue it as imagers of God. That is, you have in your being this capacity to resemble me, to represent me, to reflect me. Resemble, represent, reflect the image of God. You have this capacity in you to put me on display and now I'm commissioning you to fill the earth with my image, that I might be made much of. And Adam and Eve weren't much about living for the glory of God. Instead, they trumped God and they put themselves on the throne. We call it the fall. And so they had a paradise, remember? God's reign over God's people in God's land for God's glory. The original land scenario was the Garden of Eden. That was the context wherein Adam and Eve were commissioned to display the greatness of God and the Garden of Eden, as I understand it, was supposed to be ever-expanding until the whole earth was filled with the glory of God like the waters cover the sea. But they rebelled. And the rebellion only snowballed and got bigger and bigger because God had promised there would be two family trees there would be an entire line of offspring of the serpent that are devilish and hostile to God in His ways, but there would be another line that would put their hope in the offspring of the woman. And Genesis is driven by these two family trees. Genealogy drives Genesis. And as you walk through the various genealogies and read the stories, there's a tale of two peoples. One group that is hoping in the promise of God to bring a male deliverer who would overcome the curse, and then another group that is hostile to that. And God preserves this very small remnant of hope-filled, dependent, expressing, image-bearing people all the way up to Noah. But the majority of the world is hostile to God. Rebels. And the flood comes, and then the... Tower of Babel comes, but God sets His affections on one people group with the goal that the promise that an offspring of the woman would rise and crush the head of the serpent, that it would still be maintained. And He set His affections on Abraham and his offspring, the patriarchs. And He said, the world is under a curse. Through you, that curse will be overcome. That is, through you, Abraham, the world will be blessed. Blessed. So I, kick off in rebellion, I is instrument of blessing. Adam, sorry, Abraham has Isaac, has Jacob, has 12 sons. They end up in Egypt, enslaved for 400 years. Yet God has a larger vision that that He would use Israel as the instruments through whom the world would be blessed. And that there would be one particular royal Israelite who would have his lineage that would stem all the way back to Adam as the offspring of the woman who would be the ultimate curse overcomer. That God would create a people that would have the same mission as Adam had, to put God on display. God called Israel a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So, the Exodus and Mount Sinai is about God setting up a people, redeeming and commissioning a people. Nation redeemed and commissioned. So Israel is supposed to be on a small scale, the same thing that all of the world was supposed—that all of that Adam and all of humanity was supposed to be—Israel is supposed to now put on display God, and they too are given a context: God's reign over God's people in God's land for God's glory. The kingdom of God is expanding, and that people get placed in their own paradise, which is parallel to the promise to uh, the Garden of Eden. That paradise is the promised land. And so this nation that God has redeemed and commissioned is now moved toward the promised land. And in route, they rebel. They get 40 years in the wilderness. But then they get to go in. And they go in as 12 tribes. Government in the land. G. They go in as 12 tribes. They settle. And then they want a king. They get Saul. Bad then God raises up David, who's a picture of the ultimate Israelite. Deuteronomy 17 had portrayed this king, who was a model of what all of the world was hoping in. That is, the king of Israel was to be a model human, who had the word of God on his heart. It's the one thing in Deuteronomy 17, 18-20 that God charges the king to do positively. A number of things that he's not supposed to do, but the only thing that he's commissioned to do is have his own copy of the word and to read it every single day so that his heart is not lifted up above his countrymen, but that he might fear the God, fear God and obey God. And God raises up David, who's portrayed now as an ideal Israelite, but he's also real. Meaning that he is still portrayed as having his own sin. And therefore, the eyes of the people move beyond David to the ultimate son of David who is still to come. David was not the offspring of promise, but there was one greater than David who would still come in the line of Judah, who would be the offspring that was promised to Adam and Eve in the beginning, who would finally overcome the curse of the world. But, even though David did okay, Solomon didn't do well at all in putting God on display. And the kingdoms were ripped apart. This unified kingdom was ripped apart. and Now we have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Ten tribes in the north, two in the south. Ten dynasties in the north with twenty kings. One dynasty in the south, Judah with 20 kings. The dynasties in the north end up in devastation because they turn their hearts from God. They break the covenant. And then the 20 dynasties in the south ultimately end up in the same scenario. So we move from government in the land to a period of exile. That is dispersion and return. God had made great promises that on the other side of brokenness, on the other side of Israel's experience of the curse, they would return. And in returning, God would reestablish His temple, but in a more glorious way than they had ever expected. God would allow His presence to be known. He would raise up a king over them who would establish global peace. All the nations would gather to Him. All the enemies would be put down. All hostility and pain would be done away with. And so we have Haggai and Zechariah. They returned to the land. Then Ezra. Then Nehemiah. But none of them saw what God had promised. And so this was merely initial restoration, not complete restoration. In fact, Ezra still said, we're in slavery which means they were longing for freedom. And that context stayed that way all the way through the end of the Old Testament, through the 400 years between the Old Testament's ending and the New Testament, all the way up to the time of Jesus. And now we move from foundation to fulfillment, and we come to the age of Christ, Christ's work. And Christ comes then as this, at, at the climax of history, with all of israel's hopes and all the world's hopes hanging upon him he is the last adam that is the ultimate human and he is the son of david the seed of abraham he's the culmination of every single covenant that had been anticipated that had that had been worked out Everything was pointing ultimately to this new covenant, this new age, this period of new creation that would be climaxed in the person of Jesus. He is the ultimate point to which all of reality, all of history had been moving. But He comes in the fullness of time in a humble state as a babe. And apart from the transfiguration, as we heard this morning, there was very little tastes at at the level of the transfiguration of his massive God nature. Rather, his humanness was substantial. He did massive miracles, no question. But he came as a man so that he might die as a man and receive the punishment that was due us a punishment that had been anticipated in the Old Testament sacrifices, but is now finding culmination in Him. He received the penalty of mankind. He stood as a substitute for mankind. And all who believe in Him enjoy the benefit of His perfect obedience being applied to us and of our sin and sickness and depravity being applied to Him. It's the gospel but in his coming even though he he made a definitive victory there's still this period of mopping up operations and that's where we're living and it's a weird period that I've called the overlap of the ages a period of already but not yet it's as if the future has come into the present but the Past is still overlapping with the future. So we get this period between the first coming and the second appearing of Jesus that the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament prophets called the Apostles call the end times. The period from Christ's resurrection to His definitive putting an end to evil. This, this overlap... And that's where we live. And it's a weird age where you and I can be fully redeemed and yet still experience cancer and car accidents. But the pain has all of a sudden been transformed so that rather than being something that crushes us, it can be the suffering itself can be used as an instrument of grace to turn our eyes to hope more in God. An age where death is not the final reality, but because the future has intruded, we have a hope, a hope that this old age will indeed come to an end and the new age will last forever. The overlap of the ages, kickoff and rebellion, instrument of blessing, nation redeemed and commissioned, government in the land, dispersion and return, overlap of the ages, all toward a certain goal, M. Any idea? What is it? Mission done. Mission done. done. That's a little simpler than I had it, but very close. Mission accomplished. So there we go. Seven stages. And that's the one we're all longing for. When we will see Him face to face and when we will be like Him because we will see Him. That is, in that day, all of our desires will be transformed to a point wherein we will enjoy God fully and forever. Full joy for the longest amount of time. That's what's anticipated. Mission accomplished. Where God would finally be reigning over His people in His land, now new heavens and new earth, for God's glory forever and where our hearts will be fully satisfied, and where there will be no more pain, and no more tears, and Jesus will be treasured, and our hearts will find rest like never before. This is the story of Scripture. Kingdom. Now as we look at this, to talk about kingdom is to talk about covenant. Covenant is merely the fancy word for relationship. And as God enters in, reigning over a people, that connection between God and His people in a certain context, all for God's glory, that combination of God, people, and land working together makes up a covenant, a relationship. And the Bible is colored by five main covenants. Creation, fall flood, God works a relationship with Adam and Noah. They're the the heads of the covenant, the representatives, and through them, God establishes a relationship with the whole world. Then God focuses in on Abraham during the age of the patriarchs. God makes promises to him, a pledge to him, that through him the world would be blessed that God would give him an offspring and a land, and that he would be a channel of blessing. That offspring becomes Israel, that God establishes a relationship with at Mount Sinai. We call it the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant. And this becomes the dominant covenant for our Bibles. Three-fourths of our Bible beginning with Exodus all the way up to the end of the Old Testament is all about the Old Covenant. In fact, the early church fathers called it that. We call it Testament, but in Latin, testamentum, Will or covenant, that's what they were getting at. We have the Old Testament, the New Testament, that is the section of the Bible that's principally governed by the Old Covenant and the section of the Bible that's principally covered by the New Covenant. So we have a covenantal scripture that's about a kingdom. God's reign over God's people in God's land for God's glory. And those two main covenants, the Old Mosaic Covenant, which was temporary and then that is trumped and superseded by the New Covenant. That's where we live. But part of the challenge of this class and why we've taken this time to have an Old Testament survey is to find out how we as New Covenant believers, what can we actually gain from the Old Covenant part of our Bible? Because we're not under that covenant anymore. And yet we've seen, oh wow, we can meet Jesus there. In fact, He called us to. We can learn a lot about God there. And then we can even see that because God is unchanging, and His law is an expression, an ethical expression of His own wisdom and His own righteousness, that even we as Christians, this side of the cross, can gain ethical Ethical clarity on how to live, even from the Old Testament. Like Peter said, Be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Peter calls Christians to live in a holy way because the Old Testament called for it. So we're trying to figure out in this class, what does that look like? What does that mean? And we've gotten up to the point of judges. So what I wanted, I wanted you to see, so then after the Mosaic Covenant, we have the Davidic Covenant, which brings even more focused clarity to the male royal offspring that was promised to Adam and Eve. This offspring, this seed, this descendant that would rise and finally put an end to evil. God says it's not only through the line of Judah, Genesis 49, it's going to be through David. There's two ends to the hourglass. It's at the two ends that the covenants are most broad. That is, with Adam, through Adam and Noah, God's focus is on the whole world, all of creation. Through Jesus, His focus is on all of creation. And then in the middle, things get narrowed but always the goal is all it's it always has this global vision and Jesus comes at the climax of history he turns everything around he is the ultimate last Adam he is the offspring of Abraham he is the ultimate Israelite he is the son of David all the covenants culminate in him and through him all fulfillment comes and when Jesus comes everything gets transformed So that's the biblical story. And what I want you to see is how the biblical story, these seven stages of history, line up with the structure of the Bible. And that's what we're addressing today. So the story is what structures all of Scripture. The Old Testament begins with the story and ends with the story. The New Testament begins with the story and ends with the story. Let me address the New Testament because we are familiar with how that's ordered. So the Gospels give us narrative, story, true story, about Jesus' life and work. With Jesus, the New Covenant is established. And then in the book of Acts, the story continues... Christ's work and the church age. And in Acts the story is unpacked. Acts begins this way, O Theophilus, you know what I wrote to you in my first volume. What was that volume? Luke, the Gospel of Luke. O Theophilus, you know what I wrote in my first volume of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. What's maybe surprising is that Luke ends that first volume of all that Jesus began to do and to teach, ends with the ascension. Jesus returns to heaven. So that period from Jesus' birth up until His ascension, He comes down, He returns to the Father, that period is all that He began to do and to teach. So Acts begins that way, and it sets the stage for you and I to ask the question right in verse 1... Well, why does he stress this is what he began to do? When does he continue to do it? That's the question. And the book of Acts becomes the answer. It's the spirit of Jesus that is poured out upon the disciples at Pentecost. And it's not simply the acts of the apostles that we're reading about it's the acts of the holy spirit that is the acts of the spirit of christ working through the apostles that establishes the early church and all of their teaching peter's teaching and james's teaching and philip's teaching and paul's teaching is all the teaching of jesus he's continuing his work And you and I are now part of that age where Jesus is still ruling and reigning and He's establishing the kingdom through the message of this established word now preached in sharing and preached in suffering of the saints as we ground our lives in this book. So the story, though, comes to a pause in the book of Acts. You're reading a story and you come to the end of Acts, and Paul is in Rome. The church has been being expanded from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And then all of a sudden, the story stops. Just last night, I was with Isaac, my nine-year-old, on his bed. And actually, no, it wasn't on his bed. We were down in the basement, and we were talking about his Bible reading plan and where it would be best for him to go next. Sometimes he's reading, sometimes he's listening to the Bible experience. I don't know if you're familiar with that Bible on tape. It's it's just straight scripture being read by some really cool African-American um, actors. And every character and every narrator has a different voice and it's, it's very engaging. So... Isaac just listens to that, published by Zondervan, really, really neat. And so he'll listen to that, and Ezra's there, and Ezra, my four-year-old, will either listen to that, or he'll listen to the Big Picture Story Bible, which we also have on CD. And so I was talking to Isaac, and this is what he told me. He, he, he just said this last night. The, this is how he worded it the best parts of the bible i don't really learn much about god you know the stories about the kings and the battles and but he doesn't he he doesn't learn as much about god whereas just last week he was working through first john and it said whoever hates your brother is dwelling in darkness and god zapped him and this is how he pictured it to me he said All of a sudden, God spoke to me in 1 John chapter 2. This is my nine-year-old. And he said, I just realized that I'm not loving Ezra like I should be. And this is how he pictured it. He said, it's like everyone else was going in the water this way, and I was going against them flowing this way. I wasn't going the way that God would want me to go. So he was noticing that the Bible has different parts. There's narrative and there's commentary. Commentary. The commentary is telling us, like Paul's letters, he's writing into the history. The story is laid out in the book of Acts, and then the letters tell us what Paul was telling these churches that we read about in the book of Acts. What he was preaching to them, how he was helping them in light of all that Jesus had come to do. And there's a difference between reading a letter and reading the story. The letter just lays out, here's who God is, and here's who, how God wants you to live. And it's a little bit more difficult, honestly, to understand, to see the sermon when it's put in the form of a narrative. We have to be taught how to do it. That's part of the goal of this class. But So there's a shift. We shift from narrative to commentary in the book of Romans. And that shift continues all the way to the end of Paul's letters. Romans is the biggest of the books, and then it, it moves down. They're not fully organized by size, but substantially. And then you move to Hebrews again. And Hebrews, there's another shift. You move out of Paul's letters, and you move from Hebrews to James, 1 Peter, 1, Second Third John, and Jude, more commentary, and... That is more preaching, more letter writing, and then you get to Revelation and the story picks up again. It's a little bit different. It doesn't, it, the story isn't the same as we have it in, in um, the Gospels or in Acts, but it finishes the story nonetheless. The same sto- Jesus that we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the Jesus that we are told is going to gain victory all, over all evil at the end of the book. In fact, it goes back, the book of Revelation, some people think at least twice, Most sorry, everyone thinks at least twice, some people as many as seven times, that there is what we would call a recapitulation through the book of Revelation, where it takes us back to the very beginning when the new covenant was established and then takes us, catches us all the way back up. So in chapter 12, for example, what do we see? We see this great serpent who's coming after a virgin who's given birth to a baby. And then that baby grows and gains victory. What we've done is just gone back to the beginning of the story again, in chapter 12. But that's where we started in chapter 4 as well. Right at the very beginning, foundational workings of the church, where Jesus is establishing something. So there's this recapitulation climaxing in a Garden of Eden-type picture at the end of the book, where all evil has been demolished. The serpent that we saw in the garden at the beginning has now been put down. The marriage that started everything is now gone even higher so that now what we have is the last Adam, Jesus, marrying his bride, the church. And now they're settling into their temple paradise with all evil put away. And so it will be to the end of the age. Revelation. The story. It finishes the story. So we've got narrative in the Bible and we've got commentary in the Bible. And it's all about the kingdom of God. And the Old Testament is set up the same way. With narrative and with commentary. Now here's how our Bibles, as we grow up reading them, are given to us. English Bible Ordering. Specifically, I'm talking about the Old Testament here. We have the Pentateuch. Penta, five, tukas, book or tool. In this instance, book. The five books of Moses. Every Bible arrangement starts with those five books. The Jews call it the Torah, the law. often called the Pentateuch in Christian circles. Next you move to what is usually tagged the history books. Anything, and by this they mean the historical narratives of the Old Testament. They've grouped them all together by genre, you can see by genre, history, poetry, prophecy, and then by chronology whenever possible. That's how the English Bible is set up. And it's set up exactly the same way as Greco-Roman libraries. So, Jesus' Bible, originally in Hebrew, was now in a culture that didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke Greek. And they needed a Bible, just like our culture, as a majority, speaks English, and we need it in our language. And that Greek Old Testament is called the Septuagint, and we have Septuagint manuscripts after the time of Jesus that are arranged like our English New Testaments are. Our English New Testaments actually come from the Latin Vulgate which took its arrangement from these Septuagint manuscripts of the Old Testament. And they're structured exactly like the Greco-Roman libraries are based on genre first and then chronology. And so what This approach to the Old Testament is that God has inspired books. We can't decide which books go in, which books come out. We simply recognize which books are already in. That's what the church has done. They haven't decided what books should go in the Bible. They've affirmed what books are in the Bible. That is, they've recognized that these are the books that come from God. Other ones do not. And then that order in... Church history was understood naturally, I mean, it was understood to not be as important. It's the books that were important, not what order they were in. And so they're given to us the history books. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, First and 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Those are all the narratives in the Old Testament, and they're all put into one group in as best chronological sequence as possible in our English Bibles. Then we move to what's been called the poetry books. Now the challenge here, there's a few challenges. One, the Pentateuch is almost all story, history. There's law that's been put into the midst of the history, but that too is history. But this is a more challenging title because most of the prophets are poets, poets. That is, they're not speaking normal sermons like you and I have. They're actually singing songs and and using Hebrew poetry. But that stated, the poetry books are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, that group. And they're recognized in our English text because rather than, when you look at a column, rather than having the lines go all the way to the end, they're broken down into meter. Or into uh, lines, poetic lines, and, and they do that for us in our English text. And then the prophecy, that's what we would normally think of as the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then they throw in Lamentations because it's traditionally understood to be written by Jeremiah, but it's written, it's a different flavor than Jeremiah is. And then you. So Isaiah is the chronologically first prophet in the list of our big prophets, the major ones. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Those are the major guys. So it goes Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. And then they throw in Daniel because he did some prophetic stuff, right? We have visions from him. And then after Daniel, you get your 12 minor guys. And they're only called minor because they're small. And they cover the gamut of history. In fact, Jonah was the earliest of the writing prophets. He's from 770. And then in 760, you get Hosea and Amos. And then in 740, you get Isaiah and Micah. So, the 12 minor guys, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi... Those twelve are all grouped together, and we call them the minor prophets. And then with Malachi, that ends our English Old Testaments. The Jewish Bible is set up differently. It only has three parts, law, prophets, writings. And they're grouped by two features, chronology and size and then they're distinguished by narrative and commentary the narrative is all set up by chronology the non narratives that is the non story books are all set up on the basis of size now just want to draw attention to the two texts in the new testament that suggest when Jesus approached his Bible, even if he was using a Greek Bible, he was approaching it not in the order of Pentateuch history, poetry, prophecy, but Jesus was approaching his Bible in the order of Law Prophets' writings. There's two key texts that suggest this. And then lots and lots of texts that suggest the Law Prophets structure of the Old Testament was the guiding way. But there's only one text that actually includes three parts. So usually it's the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Day and night, Paul preached from the law of Moses and from the prophets about Jesus. So normally, what we get is what would appear to be a two-part structure. The law and the prophets. But then in one text, we see a third division. And so, as I understand it, most likely the prophets can either be shorthand for all the rest of the Old Testament outside the first five books, or they can actually divide it into the two portions. And outside the New New Testament, in Jewish literature literature from before the time of Jesus, both in the Dead Sea Scrolls and in the introduction to a book called Ben Sirach, the prologue to that book we have the three divisions mentioned and then in the jewish talmud which is from 500 years after jesus but it includes jewish writings from before jesus that's where we get the the oldest full jewish list of the books So I'm going to start with the New Testament and then I'm going to go to this list and show you that, and and I'm going to argue that Jesus' Bible was structured, I think, like the Hebrew Bible was. Here's our first text. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the Law of Moses and in the Prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. This is after His resurrection. He shows up in an upper room and he's saying, I've taught you that the resurrection was to be anticipated. Not only that the resurrection was to happen, that the Messiah would die and on the third day rise from the dead, but that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed throughout the world. I've taught you this. And where did he teach it from? The law, the prophets and the Psalms. Now, The Psalms is the biggest of the Old Testament writings. In the third division, the Psalms is the biggest and right up front. So, in Ben Sirach, the Jewish book from uh, 175 or so BC, it labels it, the Law, the Prophets, and the Other Writings. So that's why we, where we get our language of writings. That's, that's what we call the third division. Here, Jesus tags a third unit, the Psalms. And I think he's just giving it shorthand for the whole big grouping. Second text. The blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Now, why would I go to this text? Jesus is talking about the martyrs that the Old Testament refers to. And he says, the blood of the martyrs from Abel to Zechariah. Now, in English, that could make us think he's going from A to Z. But in Hebrew, Abel doesn't start with an A, nor does it start with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And... Zechariah doesn't start with a Z, nor does it come begin with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's not an A to Z. So then we say, what is it about? Well, maybe it's chronology. But here's the challenge. The challenge is that when we read in the Old Testament... Here's the text in Chronicles. This is where Zechariah's martyrdom is mentioned. The Spirit of God clothed Zechariah the son of Jehoiada the priest, and he stood above the people and he said to them, Thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken Yahweh, he has forsaken you. That kind of preaching doesn't create friends. And it didn't in this instance. But they conspired against him, and by the command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of Yahweh. That's Zechariah's martyrdom, priest, uh, prophet of the Lord. But even though that is, appears to be the martyrdom that Jesus is referring to, chronologically, that is not the last martyr of the Old Testament. The last martyr of the Old Testament we read about in Jeremiah 26. His name was Uriah. There was another man who prophesied in the name of Yahweh, Uriah the son of Shemaiah from Kiriath Jerim. He prophesied against the city and against the land in words like those of Jeremiah. They didn't like Jeremiah, they preferred to kick out his teeth and throw him in pits. And when King Jehoiakim, with all of his warriors and all the officials, heard, Uriah's words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard of it, he was afraid and he fled and escaped to Egypt. But the king followed him. Then the king Jehoiakim sent certain men to Egypt. And what did they do? They took Uriah from Egypt and brought him to king Jehoiakim, who struck him down with the sword and dumped his body into the burial places of the common people. That is the last chronological martyr of the Old Testament so why does Jesus go from Abel to Zechariah I propose it's because for Jesus Chronicles was the last book of his Old Testament Abel died in Genesis, Zechariah died in Chronicles, and all Jesus is doing is framing his entire Old Testament. An Old Testament that begins with Genesis, now we know, ends with Chronicles, let's do it that way, begins with Genesis, ends with Chronicles and has three divisions, the Law, the Prophets, and then this other section, the dominant book of which is the Psalms. And that's how Jesus called people to meet Him and to find Him. Find me back there, through the law, through the prophets, through the writings. That's how I'll be made known to you. And His Bible began with Genesis, ended with Chronicles, and the third division, the most dominant book is the Psalms. That's as much as I understand that I can get out of the New Testament. But when I take that knowledge, a three-part division Old Testament that begins with Genesis and ends with Chronicles, and the third division, the most dominant big book, is the Psalms, That, and then I take the Jewish list of those books that probably dates from about 175 B.C., 175 years from before Jesus. It's the oldest Jewish list. When we line it up, they line up very well. So you've got on your handout, you can compare the English ordering with the ordering of Jesus' Bible on here. And I've got it up on the screen. Notice the three divisions. You've got the law. You've got the prophets. You've got the writings. Now all of these are... The Old Covenant, Old Testament, that is. This is how the Old Covenant comes to us. It comes to us through narrative and through commentary. It comes to us in three divisions. And this is how Jesus was approaching his Bible. And so it, it at least, at the very least, calls me as a believer to say, I, I want to read the Old Testament like Jesus was reading it. And so this is how I read it. Now, notice the structure. We already saw it in the New Testament. The Old Covenant begins with narrative, story. It's in the law. We begin in the garden. We move through the flood to Abraham All that's just in Genesis. It's what I call Kingdom Prologue. It helps Israel, who dominates the majority of the Old Testament, understand who they are and how they fit into God's world. That's what Genesis is about. In order to lay out the foundational, covenantal hopes. And then you get the whole Old Testament that is about Israel, and it's not a good story. It's a story of death. A story of judgment. Paul calls it a covenant of condemnation in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that is then superseded by a covenant of righteousness in Jesus. Narrative, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, is followed by more narrative, more story. But it's all, the story is specifically related to the covenant. Here, here, the Covenant is established. That's the first E-word. It's established. And then that Covenant, so you have a relationship made up of obligations on two parts. It's an elected relationship, meaning that humanity are not God's biological children, they're His elected children. But it's an elected relationship of obligation, meaning each party makes promises and needs to be faithful and loyal. It's an elected relationship of obligation that is established by oath in light of blessings and curses that will come if promises are not kept. The covenant is established in the law, and it's enforced in the prophets. By enforced, I mean that the covenant is worked out. And that's what we read. When we read the book of Judges, we read the book of Judges as a covenantal history. That is, we go back to Deuteronomy to understand where when we're reading Judges, we see when Israel was messing up. If we don't read the story in light of the covenantal material, we won't understand what is sin and what's obedience. Similarly, when we move out of the story books that tell us what happened and we move into the prophet, what we usually think of as the prophets, the latter prophets, so we have the former, just means they come earlier. The former prophets are narrative. The latter prophets are commentary. And here we get the Jeremiah, the Ezekiel, the Isaiah, and the 12 minor guys. We read about what happened here. This tells us why it went the way that it did. Why did it go south? Why did Israel's history begin back here in Babylon and end up again in Babylon? It's the same word, the Tower of Babel. We translate it as Babel in English, but it's the word Babylon. No different. Genesis begins in Babylon and the Kings ends in Babylon. What's gone on there? Why are we in exile? Israel is asking. And then you read the prophets and they say, it's not because God ran away, it's because you ran away. Because you broke the covenant. Because you turned from me. But that's not the end of the story. And then you move into the final unit, the writings, and it begins with more commentary. But now this commentary, we have to think about it in light of how the the whole Bible has been structured. Not only does this mean that we read Ruth and Psalms and Job and Proverbs in light of the covenant, we read it in light of hope and in light of a context of exile. Israel has moved from kickoff and rebellion, instrument of blessing, nation redeemed and commissioned, government in the land, they've moved all the way to when we get to the end of Kings, the exile has started. And then the storyline stops. They don't want us to know what happens in the storyline yet. It's like they're leaving us on a cliffhanger. Waiting. Are you going to keep reading? And then they tell us, why are they in exile? And then in all of these books, every single one is a positive book. Even when it's filled with discouragement and pain, like Job and Ecclesiastes, how what do I do when the world doesn't make sense? How do I live for God in light of his kingdom promises when I've lost my three daughters and my seven sons, the book of Job? When my own body is filled with sickness, how do I hope in the promises of God? It's as if I'm separated from God. That's how I feel. Or the book of Lamentations, which is a, a book of judgment. But right in the middle of it, God's mercies are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. Do not give up hope. Jeremiah, sorry, the, these former prophets, every one of them, it's just commentary. It's, it's, what we're hearing are the voices of the faithful who are living in contexts that feel like God is gone. And we're supposed to read them in light of that hope. And then you move to the story, it picks up again right here. We ended with King Jehoiachin, at the very end of Kings, King Jehoiachin rises out of prison and is placed at the right hand of the king of Babylon. Babylon. Above all the other kings of the world, there's a hope. There's a Judean king who hasn't been put down. He's been lifted up. And that's where the story ends. Until we get to Daniel and we find out that not only Jehoiakim, but God has preserved a whole bunch of other Jews. And the whole book of Daniel is about putting your hope in the coming king and in the ultimate kingdom that will trump all the kingdoms of the world. The book of Esther is about God preserving a people from extinction in light of His kingdom promises. Ezra Nehemiah is about a people returning to a land and yet not having everything that God had promised. Now, chronology versus size. All the books in yellow are the narrative books. And all of them tell the story in chronological sequence. You can just begin in Genesis and get to Kings and jump to Daniel and read all the way down to Ezra Nehemiah and you'll see the Old Testament story laid out for you. And all the commentary that's within the story is supposed to be read in light of the storyline. There's only two books chronological history books that are are not in chronological order in Jesus' Bible. One is Ruth. Ruth is a positive book, not a negative book. It does not come after Judges, even though it was written in the time of the Judges. It's a book. Samuel is intended to be read right after Judges. Because all of the debauchery, all of the low view of women, all of the darkness of the period of Judges is right where we're at when we begin the book of Samuel. And you have a woman who's barren because the land is under God's curse. In contrast, the book of Ruth is positive and hopeful. And it's not a book about Ruth. It's not even a book about Boaz. The very last word of the book tells us what the book is about. It's about David. And it's a book about David's ancestors. Not his posterity, but his ancestors who were in exile, separated from God and His land, and who God brought out of exile through a Redeemer. And now you have a people living in exile who are not David's ancestors, but his descendants, who need to hear that God is still about David and his line. And the book of Ruth sets the stage for reading the Psalms through the lens of the Messiah, the hope of the Messiah. Chronicles, the history of Chronicles, the book ends with God call with uh, the Persian King Cyrus saying to Israel, "To him who wants to return to Jerusalem, let him go up." Ezra and Nehemiah began with that story. That is, Chronicles chronologically comes before Ezra and Nehemiah. But it's a very different book than Kings. And usually Chronicles in our Bibles comes right after Kings. That's where it comes. And we just say, why are we getting the same story? It's about David again. It's about Solomon again. But Chronicles includes no mention of Bathsheba, Chronicles includes no mention of all the 20 kings in the north that were rebellious against God. Chronicles is crafted intentionally, and it begins with Adam. That's the first word of Chronicles. It comes at the end of the Old Testament and takes us all the way back to the beginning in order to say, you know that return that Ezra and Nehemiah experienced? That wasn't the real return. We're anticipating something greater. And all of Chronicles is about King David and the promises given to him, and about Jerusalem and the presence that God's promised to make there. And then they say at the end of Chronicles, let him go up to Jerusalem. And we turn the next page and we read about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, who's the culmination of all Old Testament hopes. And not only that, we read about men from the east who are coming to find the king of the Jews in Jerusalem. This is an Old Testament that is about the kingdom of God and it's set up very intentionally. Now I'm five minutes over and I have more. Um, But I need to stop. That's why we have next week, right? So, I hope I've wet your whistle. You can go home whistling or at least thinking and pondering Why is this important? Because Jesus said, you'll find me in the Old Testament. And what I want to suggest is that the Old Testament is not a rag bag, but a quilt. And too often we approach it as a rag bag. And by that I mean not that there's rags there, but that Each book is an individual piece of cloth that doesn't have any relationship to the other pieces. And my proposal is that Jesus saw the Old Testament much more like a quilt that was intentionally stitched by God to proclaim a kingdom message about Him. And because the next book we're going to teach, I'm going to walk through is Samuel and not Ruth. I needed to let you know why. So, we may... Probably we'll begin Samuel next week, but I'm going to finish up making my observations on the Old Testament structure of Jesus' Bible. The covenantal structure of Jesus' Bible. That's where we'll begin. I want us to meet Jesus like He intended to be met. I don't... I don't, I, I wouldn't do this if I didn't think it was important. But I see the basis for it right in the New Testament text. And then I see amazing significance when I put the Old Testament in this arrangement and I read it this way it gives much more clarity to me than when I read it in the arrangement that we have it right now in our English Bibles. So that's what I'm proposing and then we'll get into Samuel and you can just come every week and even if you don't buy into the arrangement thing you can receive from each book individually. But I'm going to do more than that. I'm going to to attempt to try to unpack the theological significance of the structure as I see it in Jesus' Bible. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who has spoken in an understandable way. Our word 100% from man, 100% from God, and that 100% from you trumping the part of man, making this a perfect book as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would help me as a teacher, help us all to receive from you this semester all that you would have for us. I pray this only through Jesus who can make it possible. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.